Greetings and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I am not joined this week by my co-host Joseph Casharo, who is on vacation. But I am very fortunate to be joined by a guest that I'm really, really excited to talk to. Uh, one of my absolute favorite basketball writers, to my mind, the best blogger doing it today. Uh, it's Caitlin Cooper. She writes about the Pacers at Indie Cornrows. Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. I've actually felt guilty ever since you invited me on here the last time because I had a previous podcast scheduled and I hate telling people no and I wanted to do it. So I was very happy when I got your return (laughs) invite. I'm very happy you were able to come on and you should absolutely not feel guilty about, (laughs) uh, about having other podcast obligations. You should be in high demand given the quality of your work and your analysis. So Listeners of this podcast will know that I have had kind of an odd fixation with the Pacers over the last few years, kind of since that magical 2017-18 season where oh, yeah. where Oladipo really bloomed. And that was a season when Sabonis, I think, kind of came into his own. And obviously, they pushed the Cavs to seven in the first round that year. And I mean, to be perfectly honest, like my my interest in the Pacers has been driven or at least fueled in part by your writing and just the way that you are able to elucidate what does and doesn't work about this team. But, you know, part of what interests me about them is what they represent just in the NBA landscape. Like they are to me kind of a stand in for this, you know, the middling, but aspirational small market team that has no choice, but to tinker and maybe nibble a bit around the margins and get creative in its attempts to escape the, hamster wheel of you know pretty goodness Mm -hmm. and you know I think they've had some valiant attempts at that um, most notably I guess in 2018 but since then I guess it feels like maybe they're in quicksand a little bit where the more they've tinkered the further they've sunk they haven't won a proper playoff game Uh, I'm not going to count the play in against Charlotte last year they haven't won a play a playoff game since that series against Cleveland in 2018 they got swept two times since then and you know we can start here I guess I think an underplayed storyline maybe in in their various playoff disappointments is how snake bitten they've been you know Oladipo being injured in 2019 Sabonis not being in the bubble in 2020 and then last year um you know, TJ Warren basically missing all of the season with the stress fracture in his foot. Uh, Karis Levert after the trade missing two months after they found the the cancerous mass on his kidney. Um, and then losing Miles Turner down the stretch with the toe injury, which I think just completely tanked their defense. And even before the 2021-22 season begins, like they're, they're kind of already behind the eight ball here with Edmund Sumner blowing out his Achilles and he's probably done for the year. And then TJ Warren, like who knows what, I guess the report was that he just like, hasn't been progressing as expected in his recovery and is going to remain out indefinitely. I'm wondering if you feel like we'd be telling a much different story about this team, if they had had everybody healthy at the right times over the last few years, or if you feel like, you know, they've just been maybe fundamentally flawed in ways that would have been exposed even at full strength. Right. And I think you make a good point because, I mean, they're already off to a tough start and the season hasn't even started yet with the TJ Warren news. I do think they're a little bit better equipped to weather that than they were last year. I mean, last year their roster was essentially like all combo guards and centers. And now this summer they signed Tory Craig. They have O'Shea Brissett, who Raptors fans are familiar with, mm-hmm. who really – 
surge kind of for them over the back end of last season. Justin Holiday can play some four. He can play wing. Like they just have more bodies. Keelan Martin, more bodies that they can throw in to absorb some of that. Like they just didn't have guys who could guard wings last year. They gave up so many season high games to to like OG Ananobi, Mikhail Bridges, Harrison Barnes. They just didn't have people that could do that, let alone players like Giannis or, you know, that caliber. But to answer your broader question, yeah, I mean, I feel like over the last two or three years, I've covered like nine or 10 different Pacer teams, even though the roster has stayed relatively the same because they're always having these segmented seasons where as soon as they start to formulate some semblance of chemistry, I mean, even last year, their first like 10 games, they looked like they were going to be a pretty decent team. And then, you know, the Victor Oladipo trade needed to happen. You get Karras, like you mentioned, and then Karras isn't there. You don't have TJ Warren. In my estimation, I think that Brogdon and Sabonis were overburdened last year with how many minutes they were being expected to play and the types of load that they were carrying. And then it's like, okay, let's readjust to putting Karras back in this lineup. And as soon as we do that, you know, Miles Turner's going to get injured and then Sabonis is going to be out and then they're both going to be out and we have no centers. And, you know, it wasn't even just TJ in those playing games. They didn't have Miles. Karras Levert was out because of COVID. Like they basically had two starters. So I think at the very least, while I can't say that the narrative would be different, they would at least know what they have. I mean, the starting lineup that's projected to play has yet to play a minute together. And because TJ Warren's injury report was somewhat ominous, they're still not going to have played a minute together when this season starts. So I don't think that they can fully have an assessment of, I think they know who the individual players are, but in terms of how they gel with one another and whether this is a picture they want to keep is a different question. And and I think by now they would know, and uh, you know, perhaps a trade would have been made mm-hmm. at this juncture that they probably just don't feel completely comfortable doing yet. Cause they don't know where the chemistry's at, let alone the coaches changing that we didn't even bring up. I mean, they've had three coaches in the last three years. Yeah, and then like to that point about a trade not happening, I actually I really felt that they made sense as a Ben Simmons destination and also as a trade partner for the Sixers in a lot of ways. And you know, it doesn't seem like there's been any kind of traction towards a deal between those two sides, but I don't know if I'm surprised that like we haven't heard their name like linked to Simmons very much. Uh, I guess we've maybe come to expect some quieter off seasons for this team. Like they don't make splashy moves like that very often. Although they did, you know, they came very close obviously to getting Hayward last season, but you know, I think he to me would make a, maybe not with Sabonis. Like I, I sort of felt like it would maybe have to be a three teamer where Sabonis would go to a third team. Cause I feel like the fit between those two guys would be pretty tenuous, but, but to your point about them not having that defensive stopper to guard, you know, bigger wings, bigger forwards. I, I feel like that's, you know, Justin Holiday has been their best option. I think Holiday is like a, actually a really good defender, but I feel like he's giving up size in a lot of those matchups. And I don't know if, you know, Tory Craig is like a 15 minute a game guy, right? Like, I don't know that he necessarily plugs that gap. So that still feels like a big need to me. And just, I guess their wing situation in general feels not the best. So wh- what do you see health aside? What, what do you see as the biggest limiting factor for this team as, as you're looking ahead? Well, I mean, just some of the ways that the Pacers talk about it, I think that having two centers in your starting lineup isn't necessarily ideal, but at the same time, as long as they're both on the team, I strongly think that they need to be playing together. Either find a way for them to play together or it's time to make a change. So I think 
if they got into like playoff series, you know, if, if they're playing Brooklyn or if they're playing uh, Milwaukee, I think that would be a very tough hang. I mean, they, they struggle to hang with Milwaukee in general because they just have so many cross matches and end up, it turns into a track meet that just doesn't fare well in their favor. I mean, the Ben Simmons thing is interesting. I said this, I was on a Sixers podcast a week ago and I said, every time I think about Ben, I feel like I turn into the Monte Ellis meme at the, at the keyboard. Cause it's like, I can start talking myself into it. And then I'm just like, no, like from the Sixers perspective, I think that would probably be like Brogdon and TJ Warren. And from their perspective, I, I think you would already have phoned that in and done it. Like, I think that makes them better, especially if they, they just don't think that they can make the Ben thing work at this point in time. But I'm a little bit different than you because I feel like a lot of times when I hear them talk about, you know, just in general where Ben needs to be. It seems like it's always brought up, you know, like Ben plus shooters, but like the Sixers had shooters last year, Joel and Tobias shot the ball. Well, Danny green and and Seth Curry were both over 40% three point shooters. It's low volume. But for me, like if I'm looking at the Sixers, I'm thinking what could the Pacers do better than what the Sixers were already doing? Like to me, that's what question any team needs to ask. And I think if you do have Sabonis out there with him, like there's a reason teams that the Sixers have run snug pick and roll with, with Simmons and, and, and bead because people are going to duck under against Ben. Mm -hmm. So you have to play kind of this physical tough screening game and be a very smart screener, which, you know, kind of typifies who Sabonis is. And he's just a better playmaker than Embiid. He's not a better player than Embiid on either end of the floor, but in terms of facilitating, I think that there's ways that the two of them could play off each other. But as you say, like it would have to be a three-team one where one of those centers is going somewhere because I just don't see reincarnating like the Al Horford, Joel Embiid, Tobias Harris mess. But yeah, I think I point to, you know, their lineup is somewhat, you know, it's not ideal for the modern NBA. I do think there's things that Rick Carlisle can do with Turner and Sabonis. I mean, I think some of the stuff that they did with Porzingis in particular could help Miles Turner. I know that he's shown a lot of videos this summer, and I don't take a lot of stock in, you know, off-season workout clips. But he's shown that he's working on his shot. And when you think about it for him, like last year he was moved to the four full-time, but he didn't necessarily have a long off season in between the bubble and when the season started to really work on that role. And the year beforehand, he had indicated that uh, on, he was on CJ McCollum's podcast and kind of indicated that he and Nate McMillan weren't exactly on the same page of what his role was going to be, which was somewhat confusing to me, but that's what he said. So maybe this year with a full kind of off season, once his toe healed and, and can really develop his shot, I think that you can use him as a cutter. And in some of the lob ways that they use with Porzingis, that hasn't really happened. I think they can play off of each other a little bit more than what we've seen. I mean, the one thing that's interesting about the two of them is they're just, they're not really similar in any sort of way. Like you can look and there's not a lot of overlap between them. What one of them is, the other isn't. What the other is, the other one isn't. But um, it'll be interesting to see what Rick Carlisle decides to do with them. It, it's my preference that they're both in the starting lineup and they're both finishing games. Otherwise, it's time to pull the plug in my opinion. But right. yeah, I feel like maybe one of the misconceptions about that pairing is that it's not a good fit. Like I actually think there's a, there's an interesting yin and yang there where they do fit together quite well. Like if you were trying to design a big man to put next to miles Turner, I feel like that big would look quite a bit like Sabonis and vice versa. I think, you know, sort of like you mentioned the the bigger issue is not how they fit together, but just having two of your five best and highest paid players essentially be best optimized, like at the same position. Um, It's, you know, I guess it's less of an issue between the two of them and more an issue like with the rest of the roster and just like the limitations of the salary cap and paying, you know, the two of those guys like $40 million and essentially having to play them together, you know, for whatever it is, like 18 minutes a game. They are like sort of natural compliments in a lot of ways, right? Like Miles 
really struggles rebounding the ball. And then you have Sabonis who can, well, maybe we could, maybe we could talk about that actually, because the Pacers got like housed on the glass last season. Like that was a big, big issue for their defense. And I feel like that's maybe been the biggest issue with that too big look is like one of the biggest advantages that you get from playing two bigs together just hasn't really manifested for them at all. Like really on either end, like they haven't been good on the offensive or the defensive glass when they've played those two guys together. And even though like the defense actually with both of them out there has routinely been very solid, like offensively it hasn't worked for, for whatever reason, maybe that's just because Turner is like a stretch big in, in theory more than he is in reality. But you know, you talk about how Rick Carlisle can maybe make it a little bit more fluid, have them playing off of each other a little bit better. And like comparing it to the Porzingis situation, like the big difference there being, you know, when Porzingis is playing next to another big, I guess, you know, with the exception of him playing next to Boban in the playoffs last year, like if he's playing next to Klebo, like that's a, a much different situation right. than than Turner playing next to Sabonis. Like you can't necessarily do all the same kind of things with, with Turner, I guess, in the middle of the floor. Um when right. he's playing next to Sabonis. So yeah, what are, I mean, what are some specific ways, I guess, that you can see that uh, operating a little bit more fluidly in, in a Rick Carlisle system? Right. So you, you bring up both sides there. Cause when you mentioned the rebounding, like the rebounding has been a problem for the Pacers for like two or three years now, it just was really exacerbated last year. I mean, it was a problem in the bubble as well. They were like last and opponent offensive rebounding rate when they were there, but you could kind of be like, well, Sabonis wasn't in the bubble, so we can look at that. But then even this year, I think what what a big part of it was is their guards and, and wings are just aren't naturally great rebounders. A year ago, a lot of it, if you looked at where the shot misses that they weren't collecting, it was from threes, and they just weren't good at getting long rebounds. Last year, more of it was around the basket, too. And I think some of that stems from their defensive system was basically a mirror image of what the Raptors tried to do, but they didn't have Raptors personnel. They don't have rangy defenders to be doing that. So... And in some ways, it was even more aggressive than what the Raptors do, to be quite honest, because their ball pressure was just so intense and they were morphing between schemes all the time. And, and generally speaking, when you play zone, it's it's harder to rebound. It's harder to find your person to box out. And they were playing a lot of zone. But the other aspect of it was, is they let up, like they gave up the league's highest rim frequency. Mm-hmm. So all the time, Miles is having to rotate over to challenge those shots. Or if Miles isn't on the floor, then Sabonis is having to do it. And then there was no guard sinking in to cover that big when they came off the big. So to me, it starts with what your defensive scheme is. I mean, if they can limit and do more with deterrence, which I, is like my main talking point is that this is no slide at miles at all. He's a tremendous rim protector, but they need to find ways to protect the rim without a rim protector and to get some of that action away from the basket. I think that will help their rebounding tremendously, which you saw some of that in summer league, but offensively with the two of them. Yeah. Like your point is, is sound that with Porzingis and Kleba, like you're just not getting that type of acreage spacing wise with Turner and Sabonis on the floor and the theoretical versus actual. That was like an article I wrote about miles a year ago that, like only 27% of his threes were contested last year. And he did do some with closeouts, but that was only like 11% of his shots were drives. So he's not getting contested a lot at the three-point line. So if you run a double drag with them, typically both defenders are going to stick with right. Sabonis or they're going to come off of Miles from the corner or whatever that might be. So for me, and this is the area where I think Miles probably showed the most growth last year, Bjorken was very good at, at getting guys to sniff out 45 cuts. So Miles became better at finding seams and the defense and Rick Carlisle in particular runs more Princeton stuff where like 
you are going to have Sabonis at one elbow and then you could be running like a chin cut for miles to come from the elbow to the other one, or they run flex cuts for Przingis or they'll run like, basically you're creating a hole in the middle of the court, especially against zone, but I've seen them run against man too, where they'll screen the insides of both of the top defenders. The ball handler can go right down the middle. And then when a big has to step up, you're crashing from the corner and you're getting a lob play. He has a lot of lob plays in his uh, playbook. And while I wouldn't say that Miles and Sabonis are going to play above the rim, those can be repurposed into roles and ways that the Pacers have not had vertical gravity. I looked at what I think their number of alley-oops they completed last year was less than 20. Like they're generally down towards the lower end of the league. And again, like they don't necessarily have vertical spacers, but there's more you can do with that offensively than what you've seen. And I think that the Mavericks in general kind of have this reputation that they only played five out. And I don't necessarily think that is a complete reflection because they ran a lot of Iverson stuff where you could have Sabonis and, and Miles at both elbows, more variations out of that. And just some of the ways they manipulated negative spacing, I thought were pretty clever. I wrote a pretty long article looking at both of those things, but that's just a few things off the top of my head. Can you go into like more detail about the negative spacing? Cause I feel like that could use some fleshing out. Right. So like they'll run, like I would say it's like flow or principles of play where you're getting the ball to a ball handler or your playmaker. So a lot of times that'll be Sabonis. So like you're running delay and he'll be at the top of the key running a dribble handoff on either side of the floor. Well, a lot of times we think we only think about spacing is like, well, Sabonis doesn't shoot threes, but he can space the floor as a playmaker. And they, they, tore up a few opponents doing this last year. And I'm sure that Rick Carlisle explore it for, further that, you know, if, if a player is playing off of Sabonis and he runs a handoff, that's to the benefit of the ball handler or the shooter, because the guy's going to be back. So I think that you can do a decent amount with that. And like I said, if, if, if players aren't going to guard miles completely in the corner, then get him moving out of the corner, get him screening the wing so that that guy can drift to the corner, like just different stuff like that, where, you know, Players might be packing the paint, but there's way to take advantage of that. Right. Which is like, I, you know, the thing that I guess the Warriors have gotten credit for doing for years with like the Draymond, like Draymond sprinting mm-hmm. into those dribble handoffs with Steph and taking advantage of, of the guys exactly. sagging off of him. But I mean, do you think that like, do the Pacers have the movement shooters to really make that work? And that's the big question, because that's where I think Doug McDermott will be missed more than what people are estimating. That was the number one assist combo in the Pacers was Sabonis to Doug McDermott mm-hmm. last year. And the one reason they fit so well is that if you look at Doug's possessions, like I swear that 70% of them are going to be him coming from the left corner and zooming up around the arc. He loves to move left to right and get his shot in that way. Sabonis loves to run handoffs with his dominant left hand. Like he used both sides of the floor more, but his preference is to do that. And if that got overplayed, then the one thing that Bjorkman did that I thought was pretty smart last year is they'd run inverted elbow pick and roll where Doug would then come directly to the elbow and set a ball screen for Sabonis to be the ball handler and attack to the basket. And the one thing too about Doug is we can talk about using guys as cutters or like backdoor cuts from the corners. Those are there a lot, but is the player actually going to do it? Like Doug is actually going to do it. He's going to actively look for that and make those cuts. So for the Pacers without him, now that he's in San Antonio, given what he got paid there, they drafted Chris Duarte. So you're going to have to hope that he gives you quite a bit of that. I mean, he did. He played off ball some in summer league. They used him mainly at the two and he initiated some offense as well. So you're going to have to be expecting to get that from a rookie or then your other options, Justin Holiday. But they certainly have less of that as an option than they did a year ago. Yeah, McDermott, I feel like it, it kind of went under the radar how 
you know, it seemed like he was a, a three-point shooting specialist for a long time, but like the cutting and the finishing at the rim was a huge part of what made him successful last year. And like you mentioned, you know, teams kind of overplay that handoff and he was cutting back door like with regularity. And I think whether it was him playing, you know, cutting or, or sprinting up to get handoffs off of Sabonis with the ball uh, or like the two of those guys doing their off-ball screening dance, like, they had a great synergy and that was a, a big part of really over the last two or three years, I think the, the central engine of like the Pacers transitional lineups, which have typically been pretty successful. Yeah. So I do think that's sneakily a big loss and I don't know, like, especially without Warren there, like for however long he's going to be out, it seems like it's one that's going to be tough for them to paper over. Um what do you think the the offense generally is going to look like? Because there are, I guess, multiple players who could serve as like the initiators of a, of any given possession. Um, obviously, that's going to be Sabonis a lot of the time. You know, initiating out of the high post, um, he brings the ball up a lot and and sort of sometimes gets things going like in semi transition. But then you also have Levert there, who's like, I think, very much maximized with the ball in his hands like i i don't think they've i don't think he's really figured out how to make his game work uh in an off-ball role yet and with brogdon i feel like it's a bit of a hybrid where he can do a bit of both but um he's also pretty comfortable with the ball in his hands so how do you see that division of labor in terms of initiating duties uh playing out Right. That's a very good question, because I think that Rick Carlisle in general kind of has a reputation as a play caller, but they did a lot. Like I mentioned earlier, the Mavericks did a lot in in random or like in the flow state where it's a simple action, whether it's, you know, pistol or a flip between the two guards or delay with Sabonis. And then it's just relying on the playmaking of those guys where, you know, you might be running Spain and it's a flat screen instead of an angled screen. So you can go off in either direction or, you know, it's getting Sabonis at the elbow and running a split cut that could be between Levert and Brogdon. And then it's just them making reads based on the defense. So I think there's ways to involve all three of them at the same time that we've already seen at summer league. I think in general, your point that Brogdon is a better off-ball shooter by quite a large margin than what Karis LeVert has been for his career. He's at like 33% as a catch-and-shoot jump shooter. Mm-hmm. But um, Bjorkren did this, and I expect that that Rick Carlisle probably will to a certain extent as well, that I think that Karis can. He does. He's underrated at reading off-ball screens. Like He's not going to fly off of a stagger and shoot a three in motion, but if you can get him to the ball with that, and then get him to an on-ball outcome. I think that's that's a fine usage of him. But I also think it'll just be a lot of team ball from the guard positions. They ran a lot of stuff in Summer League where both guards are going to be up at the top, and then maybe it's like a boomerang, which is a pass back, where one guard's getting a angled ball screen on one side, and then the other guard's getting a step-up screen at the opposite one, where you could see, you know, like Brogdon and Sabonis buddying up on one side of the court and Levert and Turner buddying up on the other. And then there's room for both of them to handle. But I think generally it will probably continue to be Brogdon as primary, just because I think Levert's going to have to carry a lot of the scoring load, especially with TJ worn out, or you want to free him up. But Levert is a better playmaker than I think people give him credit for. And I think that should help. Brogdon and Sabonis last longer into the season because like I mentioned at the top of this like the two of them were playing 
a lot of minutes at the start of last season. Like game seven of the regular season was being treated like game seven of a playoff series. And when you have a guy like Sabonis, who's expected to be physical and is also playing on ball and is setting on ball and off ball screens and is leading the league and distance traveled on defense, like you got to reduce his load some way, somehow. And I think that Levert does that. So I think there should be room for all three of them, but I wouldn't be surprised if like maybe some of Sabonis's touches, he was like second in the league in touches last year, gets reduced now that the, if the roster's more fully healthy than what he was having to carry last year. What do you think about Lavert generally? Because I feel like he's a pretty polarizing player where uh, there seem to be a lot of people who are very high on him and, and some who are a lot more skeptical. And I think he clearly has a, a lot of strengths. Um, you know, you mentioned him being underrated as a playmaker, like his dribble drive game is just one of the most interesting attributes I think of like almost any player in the league just like his movement patterns like his change of pace it's it can be fun to watch but he can also be a bit of a ball stopper I feel like in that way where he's he's dithering with the ball quite a bit and I mean my my personal feeling is like I think he's a good passer like as far as just like his passing skill but in terms of like the awareness of when to throw those passes or just sort of being one step ahead of the defense. I feel like there are times when like he is telegraphing those passes a little bit or missing passes that are available. And so he's maybe not putting that passing skill like to its best use. But if like, I mean, do you see him as the kind of player who could grow into like the engine of the Pacers offense, like their primary and leading them to something like a top 12 or top 10 offense? Right. So aesthetically speaking, like you said, he's a very fun player to watch because he's his his game is just so disorienting. I think it has to be for defenders because he's just, you know, herky jerky this way and that. But um yeah, there was a period last year shortly after he came back. I know he was still trying to find his conditioning, which makes it hard to kind of evaluate him as a whole given what he went through, but where what you said I think showed up. Like there there would be moments I remember the one game they played against the Wizards not the one where they were throwing every type of defense at the wall, trying to see what sticks where they gave up like 150 points. But the first one in Washington where he was on ball more and I felt like he was hunting some shots. There was some of that down in one of the games in Orlando as well, where it's like, okay, miles was wide open after setting a screen and you're still exactly like kind of dribbling around, hunting a look. And I think maybe some of that had to do with just developing chemistry with guys, but yeah, he's going to generally find the same spots on the floor. Like he loves to hold onto the ball to the very last second and make that little, you know, shovel pass right across the lane to a rim roller. I mean, that's generally who he's played with for his his career. He hasn't played with a lot of pick-and-pop guys. He doesn't find the corners a lot. Like, he doesn't shift those pieces to assist to the corners or make, like, a lot of hook passes. So I would need to see more from his passing diversity before I thought, like, oh, that's the number one guy. But overall, like, the last month of the season – his two-man game chemistry with Sabonis really was blossoming. They were both putting up like video game numbers, which was somewhat juiced by the ridiculous pace they were playing at, but was still quite good. Uh, my only reservation is kind of like his shot profile in general. Like he 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 can attack and get to the paint, but he doesn't get all the way to the rim. Like he takes, I think he's like fourth or fifth last year, and his percentage of shots in the non-restricted area. So then there's going to be nights, and there were last year, where he's going to be like five of eighteen from the field, and he's not going to mitigate that with free throws. So I would need to see more consistency before I was like, yes, he can be 
the number one scoring option consistently. But like you said, he kind of needs to have the ball. So then that's, that's the issue that I would need to see more generally is like just the consistency, because if you're a guy who needs to have the ball that much, you don't want to have a bunch of five of 18 nights. Right. And he didn't shoot the three super well when he came over from the Pacers either. That was a little bit up and down too. So, but yeah. I think that there were a lot of positives over the last May that the Pacers should feel good about the trade and what they did. Like I like the value of what they got. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I've come to kind of think of this problem as like the the DeRozan conundrum, which is, you know, players who aren't giving you a lot of value off the ball, but then you wonder, you know, are they good enough with the ball in their hands to really drive your offense to the point that like you're kind of shoehorned into like jamming a bunch of possessions like through that player. And, it, and it's unclear if they're good enough, you know, to do it at a high level consistently. And I feel like there's a little bit of that with Levert. Yeah, because I mean, I think some his defense goes somewhat not talked about as well, which I didn't really want to harp on it last year because mm-hmm. again with the conditioning, but he needs to grow as an off-ball defender for sure. Like he can be uh, fairly unaware at times of what's where he needs to be. He's not the best and most consistent tagger either, where he's actually mm-hmm. going to slide over and make contact. So um, if it is a night where it's an off-shooting night for him, I'm not sure he's going to make it up at the other end of the floor, though he does have a lot of length and was better in some on-ball situations given what the Pacers' options were. Yeah, like, like there's a big difference between watching him and, and Holiday, I think, play off-ball defense, especially with those yeah, like low-man sure. responsibilities uh, and just being in the right place in the, at the right time as a helper. But yeah, I think, you know, and maybe that's like a, just a, a sort of central issue for this Pacers team is that, you know, their guards, I, I think Brogdon to a lesser extent, but certainly with Levert, like defenders are going to duck under those picks, right? And like dare him to make them pay. And and I think we saw a bunch of that with Brogdon too. Like defenders are not really scared to go under picks against him. And I wonder just, you know, obviously Sabonis is one of the most skilled bigs in the league. There's a lot of interesting stuff that you can run with him as a hub, but do you feel like there's just a limit on how effective you know, uh, he's not Nikola Jokic, right? And and the big difference there being he's just not the same level of scorer. You know, especially like if like he's good at overpowering smaller defenders and he can he can school like an undisciplined defender. But when he's going up against like a like sized or like strength type of center who's who's disciplined enough to not fall for his fakes, like he has a really hard time scoring the basketball. And so. I, you know, like that makes it harder for his playmaking to play up if he's not drawing double teams and he's not a threat to score. And then when you have the guards who can't really bend the defense with with their ability to shoot off the dribble, I just wonder, like, is there a hard ceiling on how good the offense can be? Right. So both of those issues were things that showed up a lot in the middle portion of the season in particular. Um, there was a stretch where they played the Jazz, the Pelicans, and I'm trying to think who the third team was. They were on a losing streak, but Steven Adams always plays for the reasons you're saying. Plays Sabonis well. He's his old teammate, so he knows that he's going to be fairly left-hand dominant. Sits on his hip and and defends him well. Obviously, Rudy Gobert's length gives Sabonis quite a bit of problems because he doesn't. Sabonis has about the same wingspan as Levert, to be quite honest. So, the yeah, I mean, he needs to grow as a scorer in general. I mean, I think a few things that he showed last year is he got better at creating space. He wasn't super efficient at hitting those shots yet, but he did have like a one-legged step back where if he if he drove into a guy, he could create that room. I would think some of it was the functioning of the offense because what you say is true. Like teams weren't afraid to duck under Brogdon and and the Pelicans were the first team that I saw that just every pick that that they sent they were going under. 
against Brogdon, Lonzo Ball was. He was guarding him. And then the problem was is the offense, the Pacers had such an emphasis on playing quick. Sabonis is a really skilled, heady screener, but they weren't providing as much room as what was the case under Nate McMillan to allow him to do re-screens or to get people back into the paint. They were just attacking. And then teams on the flip screen started blitzing it. So that's that's essentially what was New Orleans was doing. Like Lonzo's going to duck under. Then when Sabonis flips the screen, he and Steven Adams were going to blitz and get the ball out of Brogdon's hands. Well, they didn't have another downhill option on the floor. That was when Levert was out, TJ Warren's out. So yeah, I mean, people are just staying home. The offense is grinding to a halt. But at the same time, like, okay, we got an under. Now we're throwing it to Sabonis in the post because we can't get anything else. It took him a very long way through the middle portion of the season to run any split cut action around him at all. So yeah, if, if I was an opponent guarding Sabonis, my tips would be take away his left hand as best as you possibly can in the post and do not double him. Make him score on you one-on-one or late double him right whenever he turns to make his hook shot. But you can still use him. You can still turn the post into a vehicle for assists even if they don't double him. You just got to run more split cuts, which is something that the Pacers did a lot in summer league. And shifting him from the low post to the high post, like that's how they were using the bigs, like a slot-to-slot cut or pass and then bring that big up to the elbow so that they can turn and face, which would allow Sabonis to put the ball on the floor, try to beat a guy to the rim that way instead of having to just do hand-to-hand combat and then do more randomness with the guards screening for each other up above. Like a lot of times it was just four guys standing there and watching him. Like it would be Miles Turner on a 45 cut or they were just glued to the three-point line. Like that's not doing anybody any good. His points per possession on passes out of the post was one of their most efficient play types. So you just got to take better advantage of that. So that would be one solution. But if they have more than one downhill option on the floor and some of the boomerang stuff that Rick Carlisle used with the Mavericks, I mean, obviously Luca is a completely different cover than what anybody in the Pacers is going to be. But between, you know, having him up top with like Jalen Brunson or the other guards, I think you can get more into the paint, but we shall see. I mean, Sabonis saw a lot of different types of coverages last year, whether it was late traps, soft traps. I mean, that's kind of more what the Raptors did. At times, it was like a reverse box in one. They had like four guys around him and making him make passes out of that. And he went like one of 10 because the Pacers weren't running any types of sets around that. So um, that's definitely something to monitor. But I do think there's more that they can do with it that wasn't really happening at portions last year. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. How do you think, you know, let's assume that Warren comes back at some point and he's just fully healthy, you know, picking up, maybe not picking up where he left off in the bubble, but kind of picking up where he left off a couple seasons ago when, I mean, he shot like 58% from two-point range, 40% from three obviously like the playmaking wasn't really there. And I think that really showed uh, in that series against Miami, maybe more than anything, but as a play finisher, you know, he, he was like among the better wings in the league. And I, I guess it's tough to say because like the, the best basketball that we saw him play was when he was like Sabonis was out. He was playing the four a lot. So, you know, if he comes back somewhere in the middle of the season, where does he fit into all this and how does that change uh, the Pacers approach? 
that's kind of the biggest I've, I've been asked that like two or three times now and that's kind of the biggest question that I don't feel that I quite have an answer for yet because a lot of the times I mean when I started writing about the Pacers when they hired Bjorker and you could look at the Raptors playbook and see pretty clearly like okay there's a lot of crossover here and I can kind of predict how they're going to use various players and and I can look at the Mavericks see that the summer league Pacers ran a lot of similar stuff and, and pinpoint players of okay that's this might be how they use this guy there's not really a direct comparison with TJ Warren so it's a little bit difficult to say but I think that your point is good that when they were in the bubble especially in that playoff series with Miami it shows the limitations of him being like the number one option of a team's offense because they didn't blitz him a lot but they were flooding the strong side so they'd bring him off like an Iverson cut and their bam would already be waiting at the opposite elbow and TJ is not a guy who's going to make the pass to that opposite corner when the big slides over. So at that point, which this is something that Miles has gotten better at since that series happened, Miles was just kind of standing behind the small guy, like not doing anything to put tension and make Bam have to guess and occupy him in any sort of way when he was roaming off. So if that is Sabonis, I think that that's going to take a lot more. Uh, he, he draws more gravity down around the basket than what Miles is going to do at this current point in time. So I think that if if TJ's at the four in those units, there's ways that you could make that work. They didn't have a lot of roll gravity in that series either. But from what I'm hearing from Rick Carlisle, my general thinking is, is that they are going to be staggering Turner and Sabonis a lot. Now, whether that really makes sense for the reasons we said earlier, when you're paying each of them $18 million a year and you need to have your best players on the court, I think, as much as you can, I, I don't know. But I think that there will be room for TJ Warren to be playing the fourth spot again like he was in the bubble. I think they'll make room for that because they see it as valuable and being able to use him. Not a lot because he's not going to be a great playmaker, but being able to use four or five pick and roll where he can hit a pull-up shot when the biggest dropped. I mean, especially he did that in the bubble game against the Lakers when Anthony Davis was guarding him and ran Anthony Davis around mazes of picks. So um, I need to see more because there is a little bit of overlap between him and Levert in some ways, and those two guys just haven't even played a minute of basketball yet. Right. So that one I don't feel like I have a great answer for. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> um, okay, let's, let's talk about the defensive side of the ball, which was uh... – you know, special charitably, we could call it a, a mess last year. Uh, I mean, you mentioned that they had the league's highest share of opponent shots at the rim. Uh, we talked about them getting hammered on their own glass, which was probably a function of all the shots they were giving up at the rim. Uh, they got shredded in transition. Uh, they couldn't stop fouling people. Like it, it was hard to point to a stat or any area in which they excelled defensively, despite having some pretty good defensive personnel. Obviously, Miles Turner, like one of the best rim protecting bigs in the league. You know, Brogdon, I think, is pretty solid at the point of attack. I don't think they should have been as bad as they were. And it, it felt like a lot of it was just head scratching schematic stuff. Like, I, I know you harped on like their insistence on going over screens every time, including uh, against Russ over and over and over again, you know, despite just giving him the middle of the floor and, and like them giving up, I think, literally a billion points in the paint. Uh, in like the couple of games they played against the Wizards toward the end of the season, play-in game included. Uh, I, I'm i assuming that the defense is going to look quite a bit different this year. I wonder, I, I wondered last year actually just like how much of that was by design. Like were they invite, like, because they did have a, a pretty low opponent three-point attempt rate. Yeah. And I remember because I, I wrote about Turner early-ish in the season and he was like, blocking an insane number of shots 
And, you know, part of the reason for that, like if you're going to block a lot of shots, like you need to contest a lot of shots. And he, last year he contested 9.5 shots per game inside the restricted area, which I went through the entire uh, NBA advanced stats database, which is eight years. I know what you're going to (laughs) say. And and no player in that database has, has contested that many shots at the rim ever before. And, and like Sabonis, I think was sixth on that list. And like he, he was contesting seven a game at the rim, which like would have led the league in like two or three other seasons as well. So it was just like, you know, was that by design or was it just like they just for one reason or another, like unintentionally were just allowing opponents to parade to the rim. Um, so that's question one. And then question two, I guess is like, if you had your druthers, uh, how would you like to see them restructure the defense to kind of maximize the personnel on hand? Right. So just like, I think the best way to answer this is to provide somewhat of a timeline so that when Bjorkren was first introduced, he was asked like, what is your approach or like, what's your coaching style? And he said, we're going to be very aggressive and very disruptive as a defensive team. Like we're going to have constant ball pressure and all of this stuff. And then he started talking about playing triangle and two and, and box and one. And it was, it was textbook Raptors. Like you knew that's what was coming. So before the season even started, I wrote an article and I was like, can the Pacers defend like the Raptors? And I looked at different ways Toronto said it. And I, I was nervous. I was like, I don't think this is going to play out well. So they come into preseason and they were literally picking up three quarters court after every make with Brogdon or, or TJ McConnell constantly, which TJ McConnell, you can do that with because he's, you know, excellent at, at defending inbounds passes and applying pressure. I don't think it was realistic to be asking Brogdon to do that. His, his positioning at the point of attack isn't great. He ends up being flat footed a lot and getting beat, but just asking him to be doing that much extra lifting on the defensive end was worrisome. But you could see in those preseason games earlier that they were much more aggressive at the nail than they were under Nate McMillan and Dan Burke. So they were basically bringing somebody all the way over. And my next question was like, well, how are you going to make up for that? if like the bigs up top and you're taking four or five steps off of the slot shooter. And then, like you said, tinkering something Nick nurse is great at tinkering on defense and making adjustments within the first 10 games, their defense was looking solid. Like you say, like miles Turner was blocking every shot in sight, looking like a defensive player of the year candidate. And they were doing this little peel switch where when that nail defender would come over, the guy from the corner would go up to the slot shooter and then the nail defender would recover to the corner. So it was like an X out only on the strong side. I wrote an article about it. I'm like, hey, this is pretty inventive and mm-hmm. cool. Well, then you trade Victor Oladipo and you lose what he offers you as a roamer. And then they're having to play all these different types of lineups. And over the first 10 games, they weren't really playing zone. Like they didn't start implementing that till, you know, about 15 games in when they were doing it a lot. And then another red flag, they're like playing Phoenix and they decide they're going to play triangle and two and Jakar Sampson and Doug McDermott and Justin and Sabonis. And I forget who the fifth player is out there, but Doug is one of the chasers and triangle and two. And you're just looking at this lineup and you're like, there's no way that this five man group has ever practiced this ever. And that just is what kept going on as the season progressed. Like they were throwing all these different types of defense and especially in games when miles wasn't there. Cause like you said, I, it was intentional. They were funneling the action to the rim and expecting miles to clean up all these mistakes for people, which he's good at, but is it reasonable to be doing it at that volume? Like it's always better to block shots than to not block shots. But ideally, do you want that person to be having to do that all the time? Like, I'm, I'm not sure that you do, especially because of the rebounding things that we talked about earlier. But it was just so underbaked and over-aggressive for the personnel that they had. Like, I don't need Sabonis pressing up on non-shooters 
30 feet from the basket and pulling him away from what he does best on defense, which is being a defensive rebounder. And then in the minutes when Miles isn't on the court, it's not reasonable to expect Sabonis to be the rim protector that Miles is. And there was no diversity and scheme there to account for the fact that these are two different types of defenders and maybe we need to set our defense a little bit differently in these types of lineups instead of just running all the gimmicky schemes and expecting that that's going to work. But um, what I would do and what I do think was interesting in summer league is you could hear from the sideline, Mike Weinar, who was their head summer league coach. He was the offensive coordinator for the Mavericks in Dallas. You could hear him yelling directions toward the guys that were in the corners saying higher, higher. And they wanted their guys to play above their checks. So like if, if you're defending the guy in the corner, you're not even with them along the baseline. You're shifted. You're in shift position above them. And that's what you would do. Like if it's five out and you got two guys at the slot, two guys in the corner, the defenders are both shifted above. So instead of sinking in and having to spray out, you're taking away first mover advantage by being into that airspace to begin with and then forcing the action more toward baseline sideline instead of all middle and especially like if they think that they're leaning towards Sabonis in any way shape or form like we're going to pick a one of these two bigs and it's going to be Sabonis you can't be taking all of the stuff middle anymore like that just isn't going to be a feasible solution Mm -hmm. so for me and and even if it is Miles I think that they would be better suited doing a little bit more baseline sideline and then doing more where you're impacting the ball with smart stunts that aren't so exaggerated into the middle of the court to impact the ball when you aren't guarding it because they don't have, they don't have somebody like a Drew. I mean, not a lot of teams do period. Drew Holiday is kind of one of one, but that type of a mold of player that's going to be impacting and turning the ball. They don't really have that guy. So you're going to have to do it in other ways, but I think that's the most important thing that Rick Carlisle needs to do. And Lloyd Pierce, I think Lloyd Pierce is going to be the defensive coordinator is to find a scheme that makes sense for this team and get buy-in because I think that was half the battle toward the back end. It wasn't even just, you know, we're running all these schemes and we don't know what our roles and responsibilities are with it. I think that at a certain point in time, the effort just wasn't there either. Like we're just not getting back in transition anymore. We don't understand why we're even doing this. Like you mm-hmm. could see it in body language where guys are clapping at each other. Like it just seemed like there was a lot of tension around that in general, but that's got to be number one on the priority list. Yeah. I, I think that was pretty evident and visible in, in just like the defensive effort down the stretch of the season and like the curiosity about like, literally why are we doing this? I do like, so, okay. I'm imagining and I know you wrote about this too, just about like how they played defense in summer league, like the, the gap defenders playing up higher. How, I feel like that leaves them maybe a little bit vulnerable to like the baseline cuts. Like how do you account for that if that's the scheme? Right. So I think that the answer would be that like if it's a 45 cut, the corner guy by playing higher is going to be there to catch that one. The corner cut is the one that you're going to give up, but it's like what I said with Doug McDermott how often do NBA players actually look for that? You might give up one or two of those a game. I don't think you're going to give up a lot because I think most NBA players, especially in today's modern NBA, are trained run to the corner, stay there and provide spacing in the corner so that when the driver comes, you're providing the space or that way. But I also think if you if the defenders know this is our scheme, they're going to get better attuned to having a split focus to be able to catch that guy. Like, okay, I am up and I am you know trying to impact the ball this way, but I'm paying attention to see if that guy's going to cut behind me. Plus you would be pulling some of them over from the weak side to be 
to be catching it when that guy cuts. But I mean, it would be a gamble. It's something that you might give up, but I would prefer to give up those cuts once in a while to like watching the endless parade to the rim over and over again. Right. Yeah. You're always giving up something. So uh, it, it is always a question of what you're willing to give up. I do wonder, like you mentioned, okay, so you're, you're tailoring the scheme to your personnel and you have to kind of structure it one way. If Sabonis is the lone big on the floor and a different way, if, if Turner is the lone big on the floor, I, and this is, I guess, more general than just talking about the defense, but overall, if, as it seems like they're going to have to, like if they ultimately do have to choose between those two guys, is there one of them that you would prefer them to, uh, to keep and one of them you'd prefer to trade? Oh, my favorite question. I mean, it seems from the Pacers' perspective that they're leaning Sabonis simply Uh because, I mean, they've almost traded Miles a couple times now, it seems. But um, my general answer when I get asked that is I would need to know, and this is going to sound like a cop-out, but I would need to know what's the packages that you're getting back and what type of team do you want to be? Where do you see that the NBA is going? I think in part that it would be pretty hard to get equal value back for Sabonis because he's making $18 million a year and he's a two-time all-star who's vastly outplayed that contract. Like you could obviously package somebody else with him in that instance, but I, I think that it would be hard to get uh, that value back in return. And my other thing is, is it's, it's really a question of what do you think is more important in today's NBA rim protection or, or the facilitation from the big position and the rebounding and what else Sabonis brings. I mean, I know in the bubble and the playoffs, they missed having roll gravity when when players got blitzed. They missed his ability to slip into space and make plays four on three. At some point in time in the playoffs, you're going to play a team that's going to switch. And when they played Boston the year prior and they're up against switches, there wasn't a lot that Miles was going to do, which Sabonis did get schemed for with his left hand. But again, like Nate McMillan wasn't a guy who was running a lot of split cuts in the way that I think that Rick Carlisle will. So. I think they would miss Sabonis immensely if he wasn't on the team. I don't think everything he does always shows up in a clear and evident way, but um, I would need to know who they're getting back to see if I thought the defense would be viable Mm -hmm. if he was going to be at the five spot. But um, that that's generally what my overall cop out take is. (laughs) I know that's, that's perfectly fair. And that's, that is always the consideration. And I guess, you know, the, the kind of nexus of the question is, you know, I guess it, it would come down to, which of those players you think would be able to fetch a a better return, you know, and like, what is the NBA value right now? I I think, you know, it seems to me like miles would just be an easier fit on the majority of NBA teams. Like that doesn't necessarily mean he's better or is even going to like do more to elevate the ceiling of a team that he's traded to, but it's just like a, a guy who can to a reasonable degree, you know, stretch the floor and then protect the rim the way that he can, and it's generally just going to like stay out of the way on offense mm-hmm. as opposed to a guy like Sabonis who necessarily like has to be in the center of everything offensively and then is probably going to compromise your defense in some way. Like that's just, if you're a team looking to acquire one of those guys, it's like, I feel like there's a much smaller pool of teams that can talk themselves into like fitting Sabonis in there than, than can talk themselves into Turner. Yeah. And that's, that's what the question has been. And I really don't have an answer for in that respect either, because it's like every summer, it seems like miles gets brought up and, and trade talks like, Oh, you know, the, and I don't know which sides that's coming from or a bunch of teams making calls because they, they think that miles would fit what they want to do. And the Pacers are like, no, we're not giving up on that guy. Or the Pacers like, Hey, we're fielding calls and we're not getting 
super strong offers given that, you know, some of the ways that I think that they're probably hoping he's shown growth, he hasn't completely shown yet. And in some respects, like I totally agree with you. I think he probably, I think most teams probably can look at him and be like, yeah, he's going to slide in easier. But there is, there is something too over the last several seasons, like when he played with Thad and Thad has grown even as a player and adjusted his game when he was in Chicago based on what he was with Indiana. But like the five was going to guard Thaddeus Young, not Miles. So then Miles is getting guarded by a four out on the perimeter. And like, that's what happens with Sabonis too. But I think that's what would happen on a lot of teams. And what does that limit? And what can you do if you're a team that goes up against switches? I think is real questions, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that's, that's where I'm at. Cause I don't, I don't know which way the phone calls are coming. Like, are are they being co- made by the Pacers and they're just not feeling what the return packages are or a bunch of calls coming in from other teams and the Pacers are like, Hey, we just value this guy too much. Right. I don't, I don't know where they're at. So. Yeah. And I think, I, I mean, I remember uh, obviously the Boston series, but also the Miami series where like on either end of the switches, they just had nothing right. Like, yeah. like Bam is erasing everything on the front end of the switch and, uh, and Turner's not giving them anything on the back end. And I think, that's still an issue for them, right? I think they are still susceptible to switching defense. Like they don't have switch busters and they kind of haven't since like that one transcendent Oladipo season when he was just dusting everybody off of the dribble. Like, I don't know if they have that guy who they can really count on to bust a switch. Like maybe Levert just like with his ability to dance right. with the ball. But uh, I also think like because of his shooting limitations, you can play him with a bit of a gap and maybe that limits his effectiveness against a switch. So I mean, yeah, that's that that stands out to me as maybe like a limitation of their offense is just an inability to deal with with a scheme like that. Yeah, you're going to have to expect growth from Levert in that area, because when you looked at his numbers, like his isolation numbers after he came over from the Pacers started out pretty slow and didn't finish great. And I think for their careers, Brogdon has actually been more efficient in part because he can shoot the three against Hmm. the switch than what Levert has been. Brogdon wasn't like. I think it's a little bit of a misconception. Like when they were in that heat series, their offense was just so hitchy. Like they were just running everything at BAM for the first two or three games. And then the offense would just stop. Like, it's like, okay, now we're going to attack that. And and Brogdon finished okay. I mean, his individual numbers were all right. It's just that you weren't getting anything else. And then once they finally got to the preferred matchups, it's like what I mentioned earlier. Like, okay, well, now you're not occupying BAM, so now you're seeing both defenders. And the cutting wasn't as good as what it was under Bjorkren last year. So that's part of it. I mean, I if, if Sabonis would have gotten a smaller guy, like, you know, if Duncan Robinson is switching on to Sabonis in that series or, or Tyler Hero is, I, I think they have better options than at least on the interior. And, and and there's other ways to attack switches than just, you know, one-on-one stuff. Right. Like you can also attack smaller guys with, you know, weak side tagging and, and other stuff that I think Rick Carlisle will probably be a little bit more astute at looking for. But yeah, I mean, I think that Levert's going to have to be the main contributor there because they just don't have a lot of other guys that can create their own shot let's wrap this up here then um what you know just given the way that the team is is constructed now and assuming that uh this is you know they're not going to make a big splashy move but this is just going to be the team they go into the season with you know they get tj warren back i don't know 20 games into the season something like that um what are your expectations for the pacers this year oh boy i mean i think if they're fully healthy i mean the, the one it's the same thing with the past two seasons. It's like, I think that the Pacers can be better, but the rest of the East is getting better too. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I mean, and that was the case with uh, after the Nate McMillan season against Boston. It's like, well, they finished, you know, 
or even in the bubble, they finished in the four five hole, but then it was like, well, Atlanta and Brooklyn and Philadelphia all got better. And I think that there's more teams that you can point out in that way. But I think if everything hits right, they can, they could be the sixth seed. I, I think they can squeeze up into that. I think, you know, like what we said before, like the TJ Warren stuff, they have more bodies to do it by committee, but they don't necessarily have the same people that can do all of it at once mm-hmm. in the way that, that TJ can. So, um, the beginning of their schedule is pretty brutal, so that's not going to be helpful when you're down people either. But um, if everything breaks right, I think they could be a six seed. But you could also tell me they were back at the bottom of the play-in tournament, and I wouldn't be completely surprised by that. Though I also wouldn't be completely surprised if if they uh, do make a trade midseason either. So, yeah, they're it's weird because the you know it's an interesting team construction where between you know Brogdon, Lavert, healthy TJ Warren, Sabonis, Turner. You know that they might have five like top sixty players in the league, which right. I don't you I don't know if you could say that about any other team, but you know I, I don't know that any of those guys is like butting up against a top twenty five or even the top thirty. Mm-hmm. You know, so like they're all sort of in that band where it's like they're all good, but there isn't that one silver bullet, and I, I think maybe that makes them ripe for a consolidation trade of some kind, right? Okay, so let's. I'll put you on the spot here and, and make you Pacers GM for one second. And you don't have to like have a specific deal in mind, but like in broad strokes, how would you go about trying to optimize this team and and help them get to, you know, upper echelon probably isn't realistic just given like the Nets assembly of talent and, and like where the Bucks are at right now. But let's say just a higher echelon in the East where they're competing with teams like Miami uh, and Atlanta for home court in the first round and maybe finally winning a series. Right. I mean, if if they don't feel early on in the season that like oh, our defensive changes have made a difference and and things are humming for us and we do need to make a swap, uh, I think that I mean the the answer has to be that they find and and not that these are just lying around because they certainly aren't, but. There has to be a, the answer needs to be an elite wing. Like you're going to have to be willing to move a big and probably package them with somebody else in order to get a wing that can stand up against some of the other players in this league that are up there. They can, they can play on both ends of the floor. And I know it was brought up. I mean, they've tried to do that. I mean, they tried to get Gordon Hayward, which is injury prone, but then there was also talk around the time when Sabonis was being extended about maybe Boston and Indiana trade a big for a wing and, and Jalen Brown was mentioned at the time. So, I mean, I think that's the formula. I think they've, they've clearly realized that that's something that they would like to pursue. They just didn't get cooperation from the other side. So that, that would be my number one sticking that that better be the person that you're getting back in return. If you're going to move one of them. Yeah, I think I would probably agree with that. Uh, and I, continue to think that if they could I don't know if like Brogdon and Warren from their perspective would make them a whole lot better but I think at one point I had like a three-teamer worked out where uh, I think it was like Brogdon and Lamb and a pick going to Philly Sabonis going to Charlotte and Simmons and Terry Rozier going to the Pacers I don't know something like that where they could they could get Simmons in there and I think he would make a whole lot of sense like next to Turner Um, as long as like there was another kind of initiator there to take that responsibility off of his shoulders. But yeah, I think there's there's a lot of interesting stuff there. And I, I'm definitely, from a schematic perspective, interested to see how much changes this year and how much of a difference that makes. And very uh, grateful for all of your insights and looking forward to uh, another season of, of reading your coverage. So 
thanks so much again for for coming on, Caitlin. Um, anything you want to plug before you go? No. Well, yeah, I do have a freelance piece coming out pretty soon that actually isn't about the Pacers, but I can't say more about it than that. So okay. that's that's my uh, tease for the day. Okay. Well, <laughs> is it about basketball or? Yes, yes, it's about basketball. <laughs> um, that's awesome. I'm super excited to read that. I know you were like during the playoffs last year, like writing about other teams. You wrote a great piece about JV and the Grizzlies, and I'm looking forward to seeing what this one's about. So. Thanks again to Caitlin Cooper for coming on. We'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming next week with Joe Cash coming back for now, signing off. For Caitlin Cooper, I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock. Pound the Rock.